My first published book, Wise at Any Age, is a basic outline of the groundwork on which I base my practice. I chose the title because part of what I emphasize in the book is that wisdom is not guaranteed with age. Any of us at any age can cultivate wisdom. Today's collaboration is with Emma Jones, who demonstrates how wisdom definitely isn't about how old you are, but about how you choose to work with the things you learn and the experiences that you have. A student at University of Alberta in Edmonton, Emma is in her third year of political science and is a member of the Campus Debate Club. In our conversation, she shares a bit about the formal practice of debate and what it has to teach about nuance and seeing the fullness of an issue from a multitude of perspectives. We unpack a few words too, like compromise and representation. In speaking to the importance of representation, Emma shares how embracing different perspectives does not negate one over another, but helps us to work together to create more effective, supportive systems. And embracing the wise-at-any-age understanding, Emma also talks about mentorship within the debate community and learning to see how we all have something to offer, perhaps most especially when we are still open to learning. Hello! Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I've had you in my little, like, maybe pile for so long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's to move stuff out of the maybe pile, I'm sure. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show because I know how full life tends to be when one is a student. <laughs> and uh, so my first question to folks is always... If they could just talk about, it's less of a question, more like, could you just talk a little bit about your experience growing up and when it was that you started to step into a role of social engagement? I like to word it as like, when you moved from I am suffering to there is suffering. Interesting. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm an only child and my parents really treated me as like just an additional human um, for most of my life. Like it was never really like I was like the kid. There was no like kids table. It was just me and my parents hanging out. And so I, I say that about the kids table because the dinner table, I think, is really where that awareness started for me. Like my parents were always um, like they're the type to have discussions about the world and issues and politics and things that are happening every night at dinner. Um, and I was also eating dinner because we were a family eating dinner together. And so I like, you know, I started out as sort of a, like a listener, but then increasingly you get that perspective on things by being part of those conversations. And my parents were never like, um, it was like expected that I was privy to those conversations as opposed to it being just, um, you know, I was also there while they were talking. Um, so it wasn't like unreasonable for me to like also have an opinion or like contribute or be a part of that. And I feel like that's a, that's a real theme throughout my life is my parents just like treating me like an adult. So I never had, I feel like a lot of people when they're kids, like, it, or it's sort of assumed in a lot of contexts that like young people don't have the same sort of opinions or like haven't had time to form like the knowledge they need to understand stuff. Um, there's a lot of sort of patronization around that. And I really never experienced that. Like, it's always just clear to me that my opinions were valid. And, like, you know, I had a perspective that was relevant because my parents always treated me like that. So definitely, yeah, like, uh, I think learning about what was happening in a broader context was a big thing. And then weirdly, also, like, reading newspapers. Uh, my parents to this day still subscribe to three print newspapers that arrive on their doorstep every day, which is becoming more unusual. But it was the kind of thing where, like, even if I wouldn't have started approaching the news or like sort of things that were happening to people outside of my bubble, like myself, it was just like you go to eat breakfast and there's a newspaper on the table and like, you, you know, you sort of like glance at it whether you want to or not. So when you see like front page headlines and like pictures and a lot of that often is of, you know, they say it bleeds, it leads. So you see that kind of other people are suffering quite 
imminently all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think having sort of awareness of newspapers and things happening and like that was all, I felt like very much just a part of my like day to day life. So I don't know if there's like a pivotal moment when that, that seemed to change for me. It was more like a thing that I really feel like I grew up with. That's awesome. I really like how you said that they treated you like an additional human your whole life. Um, yeah. and, and that that speaks to something that I hear a lot actually in with the people that I interview where there's a sense of how much credit basically was given to them by adults in their life, potentially their parents, but it could have been other adults about their capacity for awareness. And I think like since the dawn of the classification of teenager, people under the age of 25 get a really bad rep for being like lazy or shallow or unengaged or really self-absorbed. Um, mm-hmm. I hear this a lot actually within spiritual communities. Like there's this common myth that gets perpetuated that basically when you're 30 is when you start to get into doing <laughs> personal work. And I'm like, when you're 30, I was 23. And <laughs> I've met loads of people who are doing personal work well before their 20s even because of like life circumstances that kind of thing so yeah there's this weird thing that wisdom and age are linked but I you know I've met people who are like twice my age and they have not got a clue (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so what's your experience of in navigating the social expectation of that from somebody who's really young and still in school yeah, I think, I mean, there's there's actually, I have a really vivid example of that being the case when I, so I was, I mean, I think I was maybe like extra precocious in some ways. I was, I guess, like 16 and I was uh, working at my, like the community association, just like doing administrative stuff. But I was really interested in like, uh, like Inglewood, where I grew up is really like sort of, uh, we sort of joke that it's like a bit of a commune, like lots of people go camping together and like it's tightly knit and also like quite political. People are really involved in city projects on a really like local level, very intimately. I don't know, they they care a lot about things that are happening politically Mm -hmm. uh, on a small scale, especially. And like the community association has been through a lot of generations of different people who like have different perspectives and uh, there's a lot of real passion for better or for worse. So I really felt felt that a lot, even just like working as an administrator. And I decided I really wanted to be involved in that. And I wanted to basically like lower the voting age for the community association AGM, which just seems like such a sort of hilariously like microcosm. But it also sort of ties into a lot of ways. I think like local politics are really overlooked and important. But I was like really pumped about the association. I was like, we should lower the voting age to 16 for these elections. And also we should let young people be on the board because it is like that's sort of the the community association board actually has a lot of say in terms of and like a lot of transportation issues and stuff that's like really affects everyone's life in the community that I thought was really important. Um, and so I was like really pumped about this. I had like, again, like a lot of the adults in my life were like, yes, this is totally children are people like you're 16, you have thoughts, like you experience like life in this community, like that's important. And then I, so I went to the AGM and I was like hyped about it, like seemed like it would be a super easy thing. And then people were really horrible. Like people were quite horrible to me personally, like they're being like, this is a thing we should have. Someone like, I don't think they said this really out loud. I don't know if I was meant to hear it, but someone was like, yeah, like you're 16. You're like not even a person yet. Like you don't even have like <laughs> thoughts for me. Like, I think that was those, those exact words. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm a person. Like I've definitely experienced being a person in the world, maybe in a different way than that person had, but like, I'm yeah, pretty, pretty sure I'm a person. Um, but I remember just being like, it was kind of like shocking because I've really, I've been sort of insulated from that, I think with lots of support in my life. And I was like, wow, actually people do think that and people don't have anything to contribute or say, or like haven't earned their place. I think is kind of a big thing with that. 
So that was, yeah, a good example of where that was made very clear to me not that long ago, actually. (laughs) And what have you, like, what are some sort of tools or things that you've developed to navigate that if you have? Like, I I get asked questions a lot when, uh, uh, now as an adult, about my experience when I was a teenager and I was dealing with bullying. And people are like, well, how did you learn to navigate it? And it's like, (laughs) how's it going? golden bullet um i think yeah i mean i think in some situations it's, it's always like case dependent obviously which is like a cop-out answer but i think the thing about people especially who assume that you maybe don't have expertise that you do have i i often like and i don't necessarily always love this about myself but i like often defer to authority at least in a like respectful way like at no point would i've been like you horrible person like I can't believe you said that about me like sort of a, like professionalism that I think is sometimes helpful. It's like not always like doesn't feel good. Um, but I think in the case, especially of people who are older, who don't feel like you have earned the, the wisdom, I think that it is worth recognizing that there are things definitely that I've now experienced like four years later from when I was 16 that I didn't under, didn't know when I was 16 that I know now, but it, you know, it doesn't mean that I like, there are also probably things that I've like changed my mind on that might've been more valuable when I was 16. Like, you know, I just have a different perspective now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can feel like aging is gaining wisdom, but I think it's just changing your wisdom or like, like, you know, your, your wisdom evolves, your knowledge evolves. Like there is a certain amount that you can respect people who are older in terms of what they do bring to the conversation that you may not, at least that's how I feel now um, in a lot of contexts. But also I think like at some point, like don't take shit. Like you're just like, Hey, like this is the thing that I'm doing. And this is what I have to say. They actually, I'm now involved in the students union at the university of Alberta. And there's a lot of um, student representatives negotiating with administrators and oftentimes really like a lot older people, older professionals who view you as like not a professional because you're a student. Mm-hmm. Um, and also actually research came out from my university um, last year that suggested that there's been a lot of evidence of like just blatant like racism and sexism as well as the obvious ageism in those interactions. So there's been a lot of discussion of like how to um, make sure people's like students' voices are being respected. And a lot of it is doing the background work at having statistics and like way more research than you would need to have in a like normal interaction to quadruple back you up because um, they'll question you on every single thing and having like sort of all the ammunition you can possibly have in terms of like, I promise you this thing is like correct. I've really thought about it. And I do know what I'm talking about. I didn't just like show up here, like my 20 year old self here to here to check it out and see what's going on. Like, I, you know, I know what's going on. I have done this before. I like have this expertise. And even if you bring a different perspective, that doesn't mean I'm wrong. It doesn't mean you've like disproven me or you're like more right than me. I like know my shit and I'm not going to take your shit. This is definitely what's happening. I think that's important too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's like a really strong piece there that I I definitely will be circling us back around to about the representation of a group of people by that group of people versus by like a dominant <laughs> group, other yeah. group. But I particularly want to get into like a little bit of discussion about debate in particular, because I, th- I think that also relates to this. So you actually do debate officially. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, I think there's something really important to name there because um, this is probably something a lot of folks aren't necessarily aware of as a thing that genuinely exists. It's um, <laughs> like debate clubs. They are real. <laughs> they're real. Yeah, they're not just in movies. They're not just in movies. <laughs> and it's it's one of those things that I see it's sort of like it's a fringe interest group. So it doesn't get covered in the mainstream a whole lot. I, I want to talk about it because there is a lot of what I will loosely call conversation online that masquerades as debate. 
Mm -hmm. uh, or it's really just like obvious confrontation where one party claims that they want to debate, but it's very clear that it's not actually debate that they want. They just want to impose their rightness on someone else and their ideas on someone else. And so it's, it's pitching, not debating. Yeah. Um, so could you give a rundown of what the difference is between a debate and just arguing? Yeah. So actually, I mean, it's funny because this has become quite crystallized again. Like, yeah, it's funny. I feel like the university campus has been like particularly politicized recently, but there's this, this other club has emerged to challenge the debate club um, <laughs> called Think Tank. And their whole premise is basically debate is too restrictive. Like there's too many rules. Like we just want to like talk about issues. So there's a number of reasons why those of us in the debate club have a problem with that, because it actually does become a lot of the problems that you're talking about of like people are just there to sort of impose their particular perspective. It's not a lot of actual sort of rigor in terms of the intellectual conversation or like the respect that's there. So a couple things that I think are really cool about the structure of debate um, that people don't always know about that I think are like what makes it so valuable. The first one is just really simple. We have something called an equity team. Just like a bunch of people. I'm actually an equity officer for the debate society this year. Um, and you're basically, you you like apply for the position and your job is to make sure everyone feels like the club is like an inclusive space where they can be like represented and comfortable. So debate is often, you, you do like challenge really fundamental ideas and they can get kind of heated in a way that's like, you know, people care about ideas quite a bit and ideas impact everyone's life. And like those things are always sort of very weighted. And so it's not about shying away from those conversations, but making sure they're like, productive and comfortable so you can't disregard people's like identities you can't um like we always make sure like there's a whole thing about using people's pronouns not being like blatantly racist or sexist or um even like uh being respectful of people who have different differing abilities different debate levels of experience like because it is sort of a um, like a sport in some ways like you do get better with practice and some people just are you know sort of you like there's rankings and stuff so making sure that whole thing is like not super horrible for people so there is like a like a whole system built in to make sure people are not having a terrible time and not being like bullied basically within the debate <laughs> society because it could be quite possible it does get into um, contentious territory quite often um so that's a really important mechanism i think and then the other thing is that with debate you never so you, you get given a what we call it a motion um and it's just like a resolution like a statement basically um and you get assigned either the opposition side or the like proposition side so supporting or arguing against that motion um you never get to choose which side you're on which is actually really interesting because you, you get to choose the arguments you make for that side so you in lots of ways do like you're not you're very rarely respect or presenting an opinion that's entirely like diametrically opposed to your own like you can find ways to argue for like a perspective on certain bases if that makes sense that you do agree with but it does like the, the resolutions are often broad enough that that's possible, but it does get you to like question sort of where you come from and where, where you end up on those issues. Like uh, I think maybe a good example is like universal basic income is a like there's a lot of different ways to approach that issue, like for or against. Um, some people suggest that it's actually uh, potentially really damaging to like social services and like other like sort of supports we provide for people versus like some people think it's a, like a great way to introduce more like competition into the market. Like so you can kind of, kind of take any like political perspective and address universal basic income and come to a different conclusion so it's, it's a little bit more like complex that way and it helps to like break down the idea of just sort of like left versus right or like a versus b there's a lot more nuance another thing about the structure that we do called british parliamentary is instead of two teams there's four teams um so you have two teams on 
each side. So two teams like opposing the resolution or two teams presenting the resolution. And so you like are forced, you literally like the job, if you're the second team on your side, your whole job is to create an, like an argument that hasn't been talked about yet. Like something that's new to the round, um, something that's like, literally your job is to create new ones. Um, so if that's a really good way, I think, to like broaden the debate um, and make sure that you really are thinking about like all the people involved, all the factors involved. Like you're like in order to be a good debater, you have to do those things. People, I think, assume that being involved in debate like makes you more opinionated or like helps you like sort of present your own views better. But I actually think what's great about it is you're like the best debaters aren't the most opinionated or the most forceful. They're the people who can can consider an issue holistically, can listen, can think about it, can like examine different perspectives well. That's what makes them really good debaters. So I think that's uh, something that's different from a lot of the way we like think about debate and arguing in the world. And it gets reflected literally in rankings. Like you'll just get ranked higher if you're like able to do those things. So it really is like rewarded um, in like a, like a structural way. No, that's great. I mean, like I, I think like when you're talking about rigor and civil discourse and like the idea of what discourse is and seeing the fullness of a situation that whole holistic nuanced approach is something that it's lacking in so much of the engagement that happens online in particular. And part of that is because the way that we communicate online is like a whole new way of communicating, right? Like it's, it's taking written language and spoken language and mashing them up um, (laughs) and using them in a space uh, that for all of us is actually very, very new uh, and and engaging with folks when you are just seeing print and there's like you're missing all of the things about like body language and all that stuff that comes in. So yeah. I really sort of appreciate like the principles of debate and what it's bringing in and and what you said about the way that it forces you to examine all sides of an issue and and kind of explore that. So like what have you learned from debate that helps you to engage with people who have really strong opinions? Uh, outside of a formal debate situation who have really strong opinions who who like you can see that they haven't examined all those aspects of an issue right Uh, yeah that's a good question I think I mean that's definitely still difficult I think that the easier part that I've definitely gotten from debate is I there I have friends who are also part of the debate society who we we have very different like political leanings, but I now understand that they actually have looked like you know that there's a way that they're not just like ignorant and they've settled on this position just for lack of other like possibilities. They like you know I understand the reasoning that led them to that position. I don't agree with their conclusion, but I still like you know I, I respect their process kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, which was new to me. Um, I think it is still difficult to understand people who haven't really put the time in to consider other perspectives. But I think actually, to be honest, there is something I like one of the things that I've gotten from debate for sure is an understanding of there is, I think, a certain amount of privilege involved in being able to like spend the time and the energy considering a variety of perspectives. I think, you I mean, we should all be aiming to do that in the most basic sense. But in terms of being able to know people who are different than you or like, you know, have access to like books or like the time and you know interest in reading books like I, I can't remember the exact study but there's a lot of a huge correlation between like if you're if your family had like a dictionary in the house when you were a kid and whether or not you'll read 
actively as an adult. So I think in some ways, I don't know if I'm articulating this very clearly, but like there is like a, a sort of, some people do have, I think, more opportunity to be exposed to just other perspectives, even like being at a university, mm-hmm. um, you just have a huge amount of access to ideas that other people don't necessarily. And I think there is, it is worth like acknowledging that it's not always uh, at least it's not to, like a hundred percent an active choice to be ignorant about things, um, which I think is important to keep in mind. I don't think that's an excuse necessarily. I don't think that makes it like okay to be like hateful or like limited in your views, but it does, I think, maybe explain some of that and help you understand like that those you know where those people are coming from a little bit. One of the things that debate also does quite structurally is you you have to agree on your definitions. Um, so the the team that speaks first define what the resolution is about um so not not necessarily in the sense of giving you like the meanings of the words but sort of like framing what we're actually talking about so like what is like universal basic income just to go back to that example like what does it actually mean like what's going to look like what are the limits of like what we're proposing so you establish that at the beginning um so then you all are actually talking about the same thing um because i think in a lot of ways what ends up happening in normal discussion is either people aren't talking about the same thing at all. Like they're, they're not really, you know, they're sort of like veering off into different directions and not really coming back to the same like limited scope of a thing. Cause it is like, there are a lot of like factors in the world that play into issues. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that conversation, it can be really easy to, to think you disagree more than you do. And I think that's part of the problem. But then also, yeah, I think sort of taking things one thing at a time, like it is, I mean, some of the, the beauty of debate is you will like you will agree with people on some things and not other things which i think we have maybe lost increasingly in this highly politicized climate right like as soon as you know someone disagrees with you on a you'll assume they also disagree with you on like b c d e um and that's not always the case so i guess part of the finding the nuance is even even if those people are quite set steadfast in their views and you don't think they've really had a chance to think about other perspectives, it's actually still possible you might find common ground. Even if it's on things that you consider less significant to you, there is still often a basis upon which you can agree um, that you might not have expected. So it's often worth, I think, putting in the time to try and try and find those spaces. And then if that's entirely impossible, at least try and someone understand like where they're coming from and how they reach those conclusions. Yeah, the the context of things, right? And I really appreciate that about defining the language. It's something that I try to do all the time because I really understand like the meaning of a word is not inherent in the word. And mm-hmm. you can get into debates, like I, I get into debates about certain words, like compassion is a really good example. And then I always like, I have to stop myself and be like, wait, what do you think compassion is? Because when I'm talking about it, I'm talking about it from a, a very sp- like particular kind of definition that I'm operating on. And the way that I might hear someone else talking about, it, I'm like, mm, no, that's not how I understand compassion. So like m- making sure you're on that common ground then makes it that like, you can have an engaged conversation. And instead of having like a disconnect constantly, because actually your definitions don't even match. Yeah. Well, and even like, I actually, I didn't get this from debate. I got it from a philosophy class. But a lot of the time, if you can agree on the definitions, you'll also find you agree on the core values and sometimes not the way to operationalize those values, but at least you agree on the same like objectives. Like the example I was given was like, um, I'm going to butcher like which societies these were, but basically like one, you know, one society like burns their dead, another society eats their dead. And to each other, they're like, oh my God, like that's savage, horrible. Like, how could you do that? Like, it's such just so disrespectful to the dead. But ultimately they agree on it's important. There's like a certain amount of respect that the dead 
should have. What they disagree on is like what respect looks like culturally for them, right? And like mm-hmm. for you know the eating society, that's how you respect the dead. For the burning society, that's how you respect the dead. But ultimately, like they don't really disagree on like the the value of that, right? They just disagree on the practice. And I think, yeah, a lot of the time bringing it back to like, what are the definitions? Like, what are we talking about? You actually can find those things where you're like, yeah, we all agree. In fact, people very often say in a debate round, we all agree that this is like the goal of this debate, but we don't think that this motion creates the way to achieve that goal. And then you have a much more reasonable conversation. Um, Because then I think also you're not talking about is this person like human garbage who thinks that other humans aren't valuable? Like we, I think, have a lot more emotion around value, obviously, which we should. I think it's important, but it's it's a lot more, I think, intense to have a debate if you think the other person doesn't share your values or that their values are like uh, abhorrent to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you end up, if there's a way to find out that you actually do share a lot of the same values, um, it can make it a lot more reasonable and like possible to even have the conversation. So to come back a bit to that representation thing, like you talked about making sure that there's representation. And first of all, I think there's a whole point about definition and words that we use. There's a lot of conversation about whether or not you are diverse enough. And I am avoiding the word diversity like a plague now because I was like, (laughs) well, diversity sounds too much like ticking boxes and just like, do Mm. we have our quota of (laughs) who's at the table? Versus representation, which is to me about like, I mean, it even it just sounds like a more active word, like it is actually representing a view, representing a voice, representing yourself, like it's being there. Uh, it's, it's not just just showing up, but it's like actually being involved and being able to speak to things, being able to embody and trying to like use words without using representation in the definition. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point, though. I think I totally agree with you. Um, so like to talk again about the validity of lived experience in representation in groups and uh, like your experience of being involved in administrative stuff and policy making <laughs> stuff on a campus where like obviously the opinions of the students are totally valid. They should be. And yet there's still a sense of an authoritative expert in the room so how do you work with that how do you work with that uh, knowing that you are a good representation of a community because you are a student in that space and being able to show up and again bringing in those those principles of debate uh, of being able to see all sides of it and be like okay I, I get like if you are the university administration you've been doing this for a long time you probably understand a lot of things I don't But at the same time, I have an understanding of being a student right now in this current climate that you also don't because you're not a student right now. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think, I mean, in some ways, it's funny to me that the idea of respecting and upholding people's lived experiences is so controversial because I think we all feel it in a really like sort of visceral way whenever it it happens to us. Like, I think even if you're not part of a marginalized group, if someone tries to explain your experience to you, I mean, this is the whole, like, like the concept of mansplaining. I think even like many men have been mansplained to and can like feel it and like are like angry if someone tries to explain something to you that you know about or have experienced or like, you know, like we, that feels bad for everyone. I don't think that that feeling is really something we have to maybe like explain to people. I think if it's, it 
like the feeling the university administrator has if I was like, yeah, I'm here to like tell you about your, like your, how do you should be treating your wife or something? You know, like they would be like, yes, that's really horrible. Like, why are you doing this to me? Um, like, how can you tell me how to live my life like this? Um, or like what's in my best interest? So I think, yeah, it is, it is important. And I mean, obviously the lived experiences of some people very much more represented than others in status quo. I don't think that's controversial, but I think you can approach that conversation with a certain amount of understanding of like, you know, yes, the university administrator brings like X, Y, Z to this conversation and I bring, you know, ABC. And like with those together, we have a better solution, especially because just structurally, like you need them on your side is sort of the difficult thing. Um, So at least in terms of a, a like university context, I think there is a lot of compromise that's sort of forced in that system. I don't know the extent to which, like, I think also compromise is a good example of a word that whose definition is sort of, yeah. Um, like yeah very telling like how people conceive of the idea of compromise but i think in the status quo there is a lot of that that's sort of if you're like running for student politics and you're like how am i going to approach this that's been pretty effective i think that raises larger questions as to whether or not that's a system in which you have to be compromising constantly is not necessarily a good system Um, i think that's where it becomes more difficult in terms of what you know, what should we compromise on, what should we not have to compromise on, um, can often be, I think, in a, in a more, like, high-stakes conversation. Not that, like, university governance isn't high-stakes, but it's often not, like, life or death, mm-hmm. you know, respecting identities, history of oppression, like, all the things that make those, like, more high-stakes conversations. People have survived thus far making compromises, but I think people increasingly are, like, this is, you know, we've been asked to compromise our entire lives. Um, that's, you know, it's really not enough. Like, I can't believe this is this is not the solution. And so I think that's a more difficult conversation. But I think in the context where it's possible, understanding that everyone brings lived experiences in, you know, of various sort of ways. You know, my lived experience as like a white person is like pretty represented in the world. I don't really feel like I need to like assert that any more than it already is. But, you know, my experience as a student or my experience as a woman or like those kinds of things might be still relevant. Like I think people do bring things that are relevant to a conversation. Some of them kind of the boxes have been checked. Like we we know that like those things are, you know, like good and locked down. But I think in an ideal world, no one has to compromise those. We can find, you know, a way to represent all of them. It just requires those of us who are already quite well represented and kind of dominate the representation game, finding a, like a balance that doesn't require other people compromising. Yeah, well, what you just said, like balance, right? That so often compromises something that is expected more of one group than another. Mm-hmm. Um, and even just looking at it, like within an intimate relationship, I feel like compromise, like if you, it's weird, it's talked about, like it's this really amazing, wonderful, virtuous thing to compromise. But like if you actually think about the definition of the word and the ways that we use it, Like when someone talks about like compromising an investigation, that's not a good thing. That's putting it at risk. (laughs) Uh, And so why do we think it's different when we're talking about the way we relate to each other? Like, why would we want to make someone else compromise themselves? That seems like a really terrible thing to do to another human being. (laughs) So uh, I wanted to go back a bit. You were talking about learning within the space of a debate club and that just like sparked something in my brain that I've been really thinking about a lot lately about the way that we can cultivate learning within a group when people are at all different levels. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about this a lot. I interviewed Adrienne Marie Brown, who's the author of Emergent Strategy. And she was talking about... She she talks about this a lot, um, but we were talking about when you're bringing people into a group and, and not letting 
I think this is a Rebecca Solnit quote, not letting perfect be the enemy of good. Mm. And like the benefit of what it means to help someone upskill within a space instead of saying like, you need to be at a certain level before you can participate. Yeah. So what have you learned about that? And like within the context of debate, but then also within like this wider context of your experience as a student and just like navigating the world as you are in like when you're entering and you're in this like interesting young adulthood where it's like you're starting to get responsibility and credit, but you still have to demand quite a lot and like (laughs) advocate for yourself quite a lot. Yeah, totally. I actually, yeah, I I had this conversation with someone quite recently about mentorship and the role it's played in my life. And I think to, to a large extent, I feel like I'm sort of like switching between like in the past few years of my life, I've been incredibly grateful for those who have mentored me. And now I feel like I'm in a position where it's important for me to sort of like give that back. Um, and where I like have reached a point where I'm comfortable being a mentor to other people. In debate, in like a very structural sense, we have um, anyone who it's their first year of doing university debate. So whether they're in their first year of university studies, if they're like a grad student, done like eight eight years of school, uh, if it's their first year of doing university debate, it's what's called a novice. So the point is that you get the supports that you would require in the debate realm, regardless of how old you are, how much experience you have outside of it, um, which I think is a really helpful system in terms of just you know, sort of level the playing field that way. One thing is cool is you can be like older than someone or younger than someone or farther in school or not than someone. And that's sort of that's sort of irrelevant to your like debating uh, abilities. Um, it's kind of cool. It's like a separate realm. You have more chance to um, assert yourself despite all those other factors uh, if like that, you know, comes up, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and we also, so we, we have these things called pro-ams, and there's quite a few throughout the year, um, and there are tournaments where, uh, like, novices go with anyone who's not a novice who's called a pro, so also as soon as you finish your first year, you become a pro, which is exciting. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, that's that's just, like, what's that's how the tournament works. You pair up with a pro and a novice, you, and so there's, like, that mentorship really built. The cool thing about debate, too, is you, like, you're always on a team of two. Like, there's no such thing as, like, solo debating where you, like, just go and, like, do the argument by yourself. And so it's always, like, kind of a group activity. Um, and the mentorship possibilities for that is really incredible in terms of having someone, like, you know, you make your arguments together. You, like, argue for the same thing. It's an incredible, like, solidarity. Like, feels like the best thing in the world when you have a partner that you're really driving with. And so I think, yeah, there is a lot of... Um, I think it's interesting who receives mentorship and from where. Um, This is something that I think our debate society specifically needs to work on. But also I think like in the world, it's like interesting who gets like mentors. I think often they're the kind of people who would reach out to a mentor and the kind of people who like need a mentor to reach out to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So for sure in my novice year, I was incredibly fortunate to have people be like, yeah, like I want to take you to this tournament. Like you should be my partner. Let's do this together. Like let's like pair up for this practice round. Like um, was hugely like I I took no initiative. I was terrified. I was like, I like moved to a new city. I was like freaking out. Like my whole life's freaking out. But I was really like embraced by this community, um, and people really took me in. Like people would be the first one to text, like even like really basic things like that. That then created a real sense of, um, you know, like I, I got a ton of that mentorship. And so, as soon as like I yeah finished my novice year, I definitely have felt like it's now because I've received so much from that community. It's time for me to like then pass on that mentorship but it's also it, like hard because I'm still not the kind of person to reach out and be like yes I, I will be your mentor because I am still sort of am I can I mentor like what do I have to provide to you exactly like how can I mentor you like what can I offer you 
that kind of thing. So it is kind of interesting, especially if you're like, again, like structurally, if you're just in your second year of debate, there's like lots of people who had more debate experience than you and only like one year of people who had less debate experience than you. So you're sort of barely a mentor, like, you know, all the whole thing is kind of still like, I guess, precarious. Um, but it's been really good practice, I think, recognizing people who are like eager for mentorship or who like can be helped um, and like that you have something to offer in terms of um, even like I, I love telling people the story of like just my first year of university and how like, you know, I was like just freaking out all the time and like panics and people were, like, yeah, me too. And I'm like, yes, this is fine and normal. And like even like that kind of mm-hmm. mentorship, I, I used to be freaked out and now I'm less freaked out. Like you can do this too is really valuable. Um, so yeah, I don't, that sort of, I think went a little off the rails of your conversation, but I think it is really important to, if you're in a position to like provide mentorship in its most like nebulous sense, like I also think mentorship doesn't have to be nearly as literal as we often conceive of it being. I think it's really critical to reach out. Like I definitely think those who like would like to be mentored don't often know how to express that. And those who could benefit from your mentorship don't always know like how to reach out and being willing to be like, hello, like <laughs> let's hang out. Like not like I'm going to teach you stuff, but I want to, you know, support you and help you, grow in this process and I like know some things because I've been where you are um I think that's kind of the perfect flip side of the like I have earned wisdom with age therefore you must listen to me um and you are not a person it's like you know that that I think you can have those same views of understanding like what you've gained from your experiences and use that in a healthy way and be like hello this is stuff I'd like I can contribute to you and then also of course you learn stuff from your like your mentee quote-unquote every time too I think so Mentorship really critical, and also we can we can kind of break down the like weirdness of like how mentorship relationships often end up looking or like feeling um, if there's that weird like power dynamic. Yeah, I, I, no, it's a really good point because you're talking about the being in the role and appreciating that you still have things to learn, but also understanding that to someone who is even just one year behind you, you are an expert, right? Like, and valuing yeah. that, learning to value that. Um, and then be able to offer it in a way that's meaningful and, and yeah, define again, mentorship, right? There's another word that <laughs> we yeah, exactly. define, what does that look like and how do we see it, you know, and, and how often do we find a mentor who might be somebody that we don't actually even have a personal relationship with? And like, what does it mean to feel mentored by somebody? And then what does it feel like to think about offering that like and how we can embody it too and, and pass that along. That's yes. really good. I really appreciate that. Um, so my last question, which is really actually more of just like offering you space is just what support or guidance would you like to offer listeners who are uh, either young <laughs> or who are kind of like in similar spaces of like operating in a space of debate or trying to engage with that. And they might be like feeling frustrated or trying to work with this kind of thing. Um, just anything that you would like to leave listeners with. Um, yeah. Hmm. I think this, the first thing that occurred to me when you asked that question, um, and this, I will not be the first person to say this, but like read books. Um, and not even in the way that like, like, I think there's increasingly actually more reasons to do that than the ones that like everyone sort of hears about. And I don't want to be the, you know, the like old lady who's like, "Mm, like get off your phones and read some books. But it's actually such a relief. Like, I don't think you, like, I think, yes, being on your phone is important and people shouldn't make you feel bad for, you know, being on Instagram, like love Instagram. But it is, I think like what I find so wonderful about reading books partly is it, it, I think it creates for me, Okay, there's like a few things I want to say about this. Let me, let me gather my thoughts here so I'm not all over the place. That's fine. Um, 
the first thing is that it is like a real relief from uh, like nothing's really expected of you when you're reading the book. Like you, you can talk to people about it if you want to. You can not. You can just read it and like have that for yourself. You can take some away from it. You can not. Maybe you hate it. Maybe you love it. Like no, there's no like obligations in the way that I think a lot of the internet has obligations, particularly for like content and like you're sort of always expected to be providing your thoughts slash stance slash like thing on something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like putting things into the ether. And you can just read books and then you, no one could know. You could just like, keep that to yourself in a way that's lovely. Um, and I also think books have really helped me mediate the space where I think a lot of people my age live, which is very much the balance between recognizing like how much you have left to learn and how much of a world there is out there. And like, wow, there's so much to take in. And I like, you know, I'm constantly in a process of like growth um, and learning and understanding and like new things and so you feel it can often feel like sort of overwhelmingly like small in the face of all of that um, and I think it is important to keep a, a healthy attitude towards I would like to keep learning stuff forever um, and I have particularly a lot to learn right now because you know I've only had so many years of learning under my belt so we're excited to have more but also like again like reading books is it's quite empowering in that world of like oh, there's all these things to learn because um, you can like chip away at that world and you now you know know things and it's, you know when you read this book and then you read that other book you think about the thing from that book and the other book and you know you, like start to build connections with things and understand like how you view the world and how other people view the world and all like on your own time like, it's not like a you know it's not a race like it's not a like people aren't like waiting to hear what you have to say like you don't have to you know, you don't have to make those connections if you don't want to. Like, you kind of decide which, like, parts of the book that to focus on or, like, what resonates with you. And so it's, I think, one of the most important spaces left that you can really grow in that way. Um, and if you, like, want to write about the books to yourself or, or if you want to write about books to the world, like, also cool. Um, but, like, there's a process of reading by yourself that's really uniquely individual and, like, personal and like kind of intimate um and i think is really important in in the whirlwind of um stuff that's happening all the time yeah it tends to like sort of you know sit down with yourself and be like wow okay let's focus on this one thing let's read this, this one word at a time and and grow from that i think it's, it's really important so yeah read, read some books also be on the internet and post stuff on instagram and have a great time but read books <laughs> also also good i love it books are your friends yeah they are i totally agree i i read i'm a voracious reader and people are often amazed at how much i read and i'm like that is my downtime thing that is my hobby that is my only hobby is reading books. Yeah, it's not like work it's actually like good like it makes me feel good <laughs> yeah yeah fantastic thank you so much yeah thank you this was so fun emma jones is a third year political science student at the university of alberta you can connect with emma on instagram her handle is miss emma underscore j to learn more about my work in the world visit caitlinschatch.com Along with more episodes of Everything is Workable, you can find my blog, books, and art, and learn more about my chaplaincy training. You can also become a patron or leave a tip to help support the things that I do. This episode of Everything is Workable was made possible through the patronage of Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, We Need a Budgeon, Margaret Prescott, Val Delane, and Perry Pugh, among others. The original theme song for this podcast was created by award-winning singer-songwriter Tajai Moore of More Music. 